0: have your Bible, you can turn to Luke 11, where we're sadly going to finish up the disciples' prayer this morning. But we aren't going to be finishing up on prayer because he keeps talking about it down through verse 13, and so you can do the math. Now, we're, we're going to go a little bit faster in the latter section, but uh, we're still going to be talking about prayer, though we're going to be leaving the disciples' prayer. Before moving to California, uh, I used to go through this bow hunting ritual in the fall uh, for elk and deer, go out into the woods and see if I could get an animal to get some, quote, free meat, um, which ended up costing about $100 a pound when you figure out all the costs. But that's what you tell the wives. And, uh, and it's a challenge. The rifle hunting is, you know, you just need to see an animal. I mean, you can shoot a, you know, an animal with a, a rifle at 400 yards. They don't even know where you're at. But, uh, when you're bow hunting, you gotta be within about 35 yards or closer. Otherwise, you just, you can't kill them. So the challenge is that deer and elk can see better. They can hear better. They can smell better and they can run faster, and they live in the forest. They also have a very strong desire not to die. (laughs) And so usually only about one out of ten bow hunters comes back with anything because the odds are greatly on the side of the animal. But the hunters who do get an animal uh, really only get them in two different ways. You either ambush them or you deceive them that that's what works best and ambushing would be you know hiding in a tree stand when they come you know below they aren't looking up and you know you you shoot them with your arrow or maybe you uh um get several hunters and drive them to a certain location where maybe one or two hunters is hiding to kind of ambush them there but most of the the people who have success have success because of deception that works the best. You, you use different scents to lure them in. You, you use decoys to lure them in. You, you bugle a bull elk and he thinks you're another bull elk and he comes in to fight and finds an arrow. And that's kind of how it works. And that's pretty much the only way. And so even though the, the odds are greatly against the hunter, the hunter uses, learns to exploit the weakness of the animal. Well, in the exact same way, Satan tempts Christians. Now, Satan knows that a Christian cannot lose their salvation. Satan knows that the Holy Spirit, which is in believers, is greater than he is. Satan knows that God will not allow a believer to be tempted beyond what they are able. And Satan knows... That believers had been freed from the power of sin. And he knows that God has promised that he will not allow Satan to even touch believers. And he knows that the odds are greatly against him. However, he has great success. And fills his tag regularly. Through the lives of believers. And it's never God's fault. It's just that Satan studies us, learns our weaknesses, and then exploits our weaknesses when we fail to do what we need to do to escape from temptation. And it is for this reason that we need help from God to avoid temptation. We need God to help us so that we don't fall into those sins which don't bring him glory. Now, so far as we've gone through, we've learned that, uh, Jesus is the great example of prayer that as disciples, we should want to know how to pray. We've learned that we need to pray towards the end of giving God glory for the kingdom of Christ to come, that God would supply our daily needs, that he would forgive us our sins. And now that he would, uh, keep us from entering into or lead us not into temptation, and so that is the, the request that we want to look at this morning from Luke chapter 11 verse 4, but just follow along. I'm just gonna read the whole prayer, verse 2 through 4, and then we'll focus on this, this four things we can learn from this last prayer request that Jesus tells us to pray. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. That's it. Pretty short, pretty sweet. You think, alright, lead us not into temptation. Not even a deliver us from evil there, like Matthew has. Just lead us not into temptation, period. So what do we find here? Well, there's four truths uh, in this last prayer request that I would like to just bring out and just explain a little bit. And I think it should be helpful for you to keep you from falling into sin and not giving glory to God. The first is, remember, you need God's grace to live for his glory. You need God's grace. Now, this is pretty much a no-brainer, and we've talked about this multiple times, but it's here, and so we need to just be reminded of it. We've learned that the purpose of all things is the glory of God. That is the purpose of all things. Whatever we eat, whatever we do, drink, whatever, all to the glory of God. So our whole life is to try and achieve that end. And in order to give God glory, we must realize that we need God. We need God's gracious provision. And that's why Jesus says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Pray, forgive us our trespasses. Pray, lead us not in temptation. All of those are requests that we who are needy ask God who is gracious to give us. So that is pretty easy. We see that there. Now, what is amazing is that there are many times when we don't acknowledge that we need God. We just kind of do things on our own. We go through life trusting in ourselves, trusting other people, trusting worldly resources, And yet, all this time, God is actually the one who is really supplying all of our needs. We just aren't acknowledging him. We aren't trusting in him. Now, see if you can follow this progression of thought as we move through this prayer. We are to first pray, we've learned this, that God is to be glorified in all things. His name is to be hallowed, which means reverenced, honored, respected. And that happens when he receives glory in all of his creation and in our lives. We give him glory in our lives only when we're obeying God's word. I think we all know that. You can't obey, give God glory when you're disobeying. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. And we are to pray that the kingdom of God would come. And... When the kingdom of God does come, then God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven through the reign of Christ because we as believers at that time will be glorified. And so we are praying for that time of even closer perfection when we will love God, honor God, and obey God. And we are to pray, you know, give us this day our daily bread, fulfill our needs why because we need the basics of life so we can obey god and love him from the heart and we are to say forgive us our trespasses while we know in our heart we're forgiving other people because we know we're going to fail and so it is god's will that we obey him by asking him for forgiveness when we fail And since obedience, loving God, and obeying him out of love from the heart is the overarching category of what we need to be doing, then we need to avoid not doing that which is sinning. Hence the prayer request before us. Lead us not to temptation. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do lots of things on your own, except glorify God, except love God, except obey God. You get off on your own, you quit trusting God, you're just like a, a branch that's been severed from the vine. Now, it's fall, and so all of my grapevines are starting to drop their leaves, and soon I'll get out there and turn that huge, massive, tangled vines into just a couple little sticks. Now, when you cut a branch off the vine, it just gets hard and dries up and dies. There are no living, thriving branches that are apart from the vine and even if you go to the vine in the middle of the winter which just looks like a you know brown stick that if you go up to it and you scratch just right below the surface of the bark it's nice and bright and green and very live under there and then in the spring that buds out again you separate yourself from the vine you die and that's what a lot of christians do in their lives we call ourselves christians but by our actions we Separate ourselves from the vine. Oh, we look like a living branch, but if you scratched under the surface, you'd just find deadness under there. You start trusting in yourself and doing things in your own strength and your own ingenuity and not asking God, you're just going to wither and die. You're going to find yourself feeling very far from God, very miserable, Very unspiritual because you are. You'll be like that person that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. This man's going to be like a live in a stony wasteland, a land of salt without inhabitants. And he's not going to see when prosperity comes. He's just going to be dried up spiritually. Have you ever find yourself like that? Where, you know, you keep having good intentions. I'm going to read my Bible. I need to read my Bible. I need to go to church. I need I should probably spend my time a little more wise. I probably should listen to this instead of that. And I should probably watch this instead of that. And I should probably do this instead of that. But you keep making bad choices, bad choices, bad choices. And pretty soon, what happens to your soul? You just start shriveling up. This is not happening. Because you've left the resources that God has given you to thrive and now you're shriveling up on your own. You need to ask yourself, are, are you reading your Bible? You say, well, well, well no. Do you know why? Because you don't want to hear from God. That's why. Are you praying? I mean, not not only just, you know, maybe a formal time of prayer, but are you praying throughout the day? You say, well, no, it's because you don't want to talk to God. Are you serving Well, no, not right now. Because you don't love the people of God. I mean, that's it. Just tell yourself the truth. Scratch under the surface. Is it dead or is it alive? Someone said, an atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. Now think about that. When we call ourselves Christians... And yet we don't do what God says. We're just practical atheists, aren't we? I mean, we're basically saying, I'm not going to have this man rule over us. We're not going to have Jesus rule our lives. I don't mind escaping hell, but you know, let's not talk about following Christ, taking up our cross, doing what Jesus wants us to do. I mean, that's a little fanatic. No, that's just Christian. And you know, you would expect, well, yeah... There's the God hater, the pagan, the atheist. Of course, that person's going to live that way. But too often, those who profess Christ live that way. That is odd. Octavius Winslow, in his book, The Glory of Christ in Heaven, warned, quote, Beware of that practical atheism which excludes God from his own world. Which excludes him from your individual history. He is not only present in his created universe, but he is as much in his personal events of life, shaping, guiding, overruling each and all. End quote. You know, it just amazes me. You know, when you hear things like, you know, get prayer out of the school and you know, taking God we trust off our money, and you know, let's not let the commandments be in the courthouse. Hello. Government is established by God. Our government is founded upon the principles of scripture, the word of God. Our court system's based off of Deuteronomy. And you want to take God? You know, the only reason we have a composite society where you can have people in different faiths coexisting, all men being created equal, is because we have the Bible. And the people looked at the Bible and said, let's write the Constitution based on the Bible. Now we want to get God out of the system. Of course, when something bad happens, we want to crawl back. Oh, God bless America. (laughs) We need to bless him first. We need to obey him first. The true Christian is the one who doesn't live like an atheist all week in his heart and in his actions. Stephen Charnock, in volume one of his pretty monumental and uh, brainiac work, The Existence and Attributes of God, has a, a really good essay. If you can plod through it, it's well worth the thought. It's called Practical Atheism. And Charnock at one point says, quote, All sin is founded in a secret atheism. Atheism is the spirit of every sin. All the floods of impieties in the world break into the gate of a secret atheism. And though several sins may dis- dis- uh, disagree with one another, yet like Herod and Pilate against Christ, they join hand in hand against the interest of God. Though lust and pleasures be diverse, yet they are all united in no disobedience to him, end quote. That is good. There was a lot more, but I can't read the whole thing. But yeah, you know, what's really happening is when we call ourselves Christians, but we don't do what God says, we practice an atheism. We may actually be saved, and we may be Christians indeed, but when we don't do what, Christians do, except profess, then we are living like atheists and are no different in that respect. The true Christian knows this. He knows his weakness. He knows his inability to battle sin. And he knows that the only way he's ever going to make it and live for the glory of God is if God helps him or her. So Christians pray because they know they need God. Secondly, know that God leads you. I mean, it isn't hard to see if you look at the verse, lead us not in temptation, that we're asking God to lead us. God is sovereign. God is leading all of his creation to his intended purposes. He has declared the end from the beginning, Isaiah says. He is in the heaven, the psalmist says, and does whatever he pleases. He pleases. Paul says in Ephesians 1.11 that God is working all things after the counsel of his will. God is sovereign. God is leading. He is guiding even us in all events of history. But how many times have you and I said something like this? I've really been sensitive to this because I, saw, I knew this was coming. So I've been hearing it more probably because I've been studying it where somebody says, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to go. And you just fill in the blank there. Listen to what James says about that in James 4, 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, "Tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and go to Disneyland. Um, he doesn't say that, but you get the picture. <laughs> and engage in business and make a profit. You, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that, but as it is, now listen to this. You boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Now, could you imagine us up here? The elders have an announcement. Yes. uh, um, One of our members said they were going to do something tomorrow. And didn't add on there if it be the Lord's will and we're going to have to publicly discipline them. (laughs) You're thinking, wow, that's kind of extreme. All such boasting is evil. It is evil not to acknowledge that there is a sovereign God who is in control of all things. It is arrogance to think that you are in charge of your own future that's what the scriptures teach the fact is you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow you don't even know if you're going to be make it home today i mean we live in burbank there's some bad drivers here so <laughs> be glad you're not in idaho there's some really bad drivers there I was in Russia. We were driving down the road and all of a sudden we pulled up on the curb and we're driving down the sidewalk. I'm sitting in the back. Is this normal? (laughs) Well, there's about five lanes of traffic and uh, two lanes in the road. So we kind of just kind of go wherever there's space. (laughs) So pray for me. I'm going to be going there in a month. Great Grandy's going with me. So (laughs) pray for us. But yeah, you know, at any moment, God could just cut the strings of your life and then you just drop into eternity. You never know when it's going to happen. And to think that you're going to live another day, another hour is presumption. It is arrogance. It is to deny God's sovereign will. There are those who deny God's sovereignty over them who presume upon God thinking, well, I am going to live this long. And if I do this, God will do that. I mean, we have a way of just thinking that, well, you know, God isn't you know that sovereign. It was like the guy in the, that I read about last year and the Ukrainian man who brought a rope into the, the zoo at Kiev and lowered himself into a lion's cage and said, God will save me if he exists. A lioness jumped on him, cut through his carotid artery, and killed him instantly. Oh, well, that was really smart. Should have read his Bible, not to put thy Lord, thy God, to test. And you hear things like this, and you go, man, how ridiculous, how, how absurd, how foolish. It's no more foolish than saying, I'm going to Disneyland tomorrow. Because you don't know that. You're presuming upon God. Psalm 37:23 says the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. They're established by the Lord. Proverbs 16:9 says the mind of a man plans his way but the Lord directs his step. Yeah, you think you know where you're going, but we all know what happens. The other day I went to get Lisa at the airport you know, I'm thinking, oh man, it's Sunday afternoon, there's not very much traffic, I'm going to whip over there to the airport, and I'm, oh, I'll leave it extra early, I've got some good sermons to listen to, so I go there, and right at that place where this freeway narrows and goes up the hill there off the 110, there was a car conked out at the bottom of the hill, another co- car conked out halfway up the hill, another car conked up at the top of the hill, and oh. Oh, and you know, after sitting there, you go through the same kind of multiple, I mean, I don't know about you, you know, phases of traffic jam torment. (laughs) What's going on? You know, man, I wish I could lay on my horn like that ungodly guy next to me. You're just kind of praying. (laughs) Say, okay, Lord. All right. All right. I'll be patient. I'll be patient. And then pretty soon it's like, all right, God, I'm going to be late. Okay. You're sovereign. All right. Now, this is your will for me. And all of a sudden, the traffic starts going again. It's like, okay, you learned. That's how it is, isn't it? We think we know what we're doing. We think we have plans. But when God interrupts, he sometimes reminds us who's in charge. Oh, yeah, you want to get there on time. What's God want for you? Proverbs 20 verse twenty four says man, a man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? God ordains our steps. It just says it there Jeremiah 1023 I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in man who walks to direct his steps. God is sovereign in guiding your life." So let's not live like atheists and think we're in charge. Think we're going here. Think we're going there. Think we're going to do this. Think we're going that. But say if the Lord wills, knowing that he is the one who is guiding all history. Many people had intentions to go somewhere or be someplace and took a detour to the hospital or the the mortuary. And never showed up. Third. Know that God may choose to use evil for your good. I mean, the prayer request is lead us not into temptation. But the fact is, God uses temptation for our good. Now, granted, God could, at the moment of salvation, deliver you from all temptation. It's called death and glorification. Um, He could just instantly rapture you into heaven and that would be the end of it. Then you wouldn't have to worry anymore because you'd now be in glory. But some may think well does the does, does are you trying to say that God leads us into temptation? First of all, you need to know that this word temptation can be translated in two different ways. It can be testing or tempting. And the question is, well, how do you know which it is? Well, the only difference between a test and a temptation is a temptation is when the motive is to lead someone to do evil. A test is when your motive is to give somebody an opportunity to do good. Satan only tempts because he only wants us to do evil. God only tests because he wants to give us an opportunity to exercise our faith and trust in him. So God will test us to give us an opportunity to do good and to trust him and obey him to become stronger in the faith. Satan will tempt us and attempts to tear us down so we become entrenched in sin and entangled and weaker in the faith. And though the same thing may happen, God may have one purpose and Satan may have another, and yet they achieve God's end. Noble Geldenheis says, God himself does not tempt James one thirteen, but nevertheless he allows the faithful to be tempted in order to test and purify us, end quote. And he goes on to say a little bit further later, quote, we must pray that we be led as seldom as possible into circumstances fraught with temptation. But when God nevertheless allows us to be led into such circumstances, we must rejoice in the Lord, who gives us the victory and causes everything to contribute towards the good of those who love him. Romans eight twenty eight, end quote. And that's exactly how it is. You know, you know what James says in James one thirteen and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt any, uh, be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. God never solicits you to disobey him ever. He says, each one is tempted when he is carried and enticed by his own lust. It's you. It's always you who sins. It's never god god neither causes you to sin nor does he entice you or tempt you to sin he can't do it it's contrary to his nature well jesus isn't saying that we should ask the father that we never be tempted again because the scriptures clearly teach that god uses temptation for good purposes I mean, God knows when you're going to be tempted and he sees it coming and he could remove you. He could have removed either the serpent from the garden or Eve from the serpent so that she wouldn't have to sin. But for his good purposes, he allowed it to happen. I mean, just think about this. Can you think of a case where it explicitly says that God led somebody into temptation? Maybe Matthew 4 or Luke 4 where it says, and the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God did that. I'm thinking, well, man, why would he do that? Because, as Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus needed to learn how to be that sympathetic high priest. Being tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So God said, okay, so you can be the best priest possible. We're gonna stick you into the desert isolate you from people make you weak with fasting and then i'm just gonna let satan come down on you with all of his might so that you can resist it so that you can be the sympathetic high priest a good thing a thing you know it's just so great when you go to jesus and you go oh lord you don't know how how i'm tempted yes he does Come in, you know, you can't say, well, you don't just don't know how it. Yes, he does. Have you ever fasted for 40 days? And been tempted? Without God's restraint to just let Satan go after you? You've never experienced that degree of temptation. He knows whatever your temptation is, Jesus can sympathize with you because he's been there, but to a greater degree. You remember what happened in Job? I mean, here's Job described as the the upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And Job chapter 1 and 2, when the sons of God come to give account to the Lord, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan's among them. The Lord says to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And he just says, go for it. You think, well, you mean God pointed Job out to Satan. Yeah. Why would he do that? Well, how many people have ever been blessed from reading the story of Job? I have. I am really grateful for that book. Aren't you glad he went through that? And not only that, even Job was blessed from going through that. If you read the end of the story, more than he was before. God blessed him abundantly. And so, yes, he went through the trial, but yes, it was for a good purpose. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12. Here's Paul. In this book, Paul is defending his apostolic authority, and he's got people trying to undermine it. And in the beginning of chapter 12, he talks about these these visions and these revelations and these things that God has given him, which are just incredible we know from like galatians god led him out and gave him like a private school and transported him up into heaven and gave him all of this incredible revelation which is just paul just says just unutterable unutterable i just can't even tell you how incredible it was and even though god gave him that huge blessing god also knew paul and he thought you know this is going to be a huge temptation for Paul. It'd be a huge temptation for anybody, but even Paul. So I'm going to help him. Now look at what he says in verse 7 here. Second Corinthians 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, which God gave to him for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, notice the temptation for Paul is to have, be prideful, to exalt himself, because God gave him these incredible revelations to keep me from exalting myself. So there's a good purpose here. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, a lot of times people talk about this. This thorn in the flesh of some sort of physical ailment. Listen, see messenger of Satan there? The word messenger is the word angelos. It's almost always translated angel. A few times it's translated one who brings a message. But whenever you have an angelos of Satan, you're talking about a demon. For sure it's a person. It's either a person that Satan was using or it was a demon itself. Either way, it was a demon Attack on Paul. A messenger of Satan. Now, notice. There was given to me. You could put in the white spaces there. By the loving God. A thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan. An angelos of Satan. To torment me. Why would God do that? Well, look at what he says. To keep me from exalting myself. Good purpose. God's up there and he says, you know, I'm going to give Paul some pretty incredible revelations. But he's really going to be tempted to be prideful. So I better keep that from happening. And what's going to work for Paul is this situation. This is going to be the hard but good situation for Paul. This is what Paul needs. And now, of course, Paul doesn't know this. Paul doesn't know what's going on in the mind of God at this point. And so what does he do? Well, like he does what all of us should do when all of these trials and problems come upon us. Look at verse 8. Concerning this, I implored the word three times that it might leave. Lord, please make it go away. Leave me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. And God said, verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now, get that. Paul, I'm not taking away the messenger of Satan. I'm not taking him away. I'm going to leave you there and let him continue to go after you. But I want you to know that while he is, and while you're weak, My grace is going to be sufficient for you in that situation. So not only am I going to give you the messenger of Satan to keep you from exalting yourself, but when you're really weak, I'm going to supply just enough grace to get you through. That way you don't exalt yourself because you're being pounded by the messenger of Satan and you don't exalt yourself because I'm making you really weak so you have to trust me. You see that? Now that's not how I would do it. I would just say, messenger, abyss. There you go, Paul, you're fixed. But then that, then Paul would be tempted to be proud. And this is what Paul needed. And who knows what you need? I'll tell you what you need, whatever you're getting right now. (laughs) Paul then goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content. Content. And notice the kind of things he says here with weaknesses. Do you ever feel weak trying to do what God wants you to do? With persecutions, ever get persecuted with insults, ever get insulted or distressed? He says difficulties, all these little words he throws in there are all things that all Christians experience all the time when they're trying to do God's will. And Paul says, all these things are from the hand of a loving God. He brings them into our life to cause us to trust him. Because when we're clinging to Jesus, that's when God gets the most glory. Every Christian knows about these things to one degree or another. You're trying to please God and then comes weakness and then comes insults. And then comes distress and then comes persecutions and then comes difficulties And it's just a temptation, isn't it, to run to self, to run away, to, you know, do anything. But trust in God. James reminds us in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, you know, you wonder if this is, you know, some sort of ancient Near Eastern typo. He says, consider it all joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials... Now, that word, various trials, is either multicolored or multifaceted or manifold or all the above. It's basically trials of every shape, size, and color. Are you sure? Maybe there's like some Greek word that sounds like joy. That's almost like joy and that, that the typist or the copyist is just kind of messed up there that it really says consider it all pain or something. I mean, isn't there some sort of like a reason? Are you sure? Now he says consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, notice when it comes from God's hand, it's a testing of your faith, and that produces endurance, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing. One Puritan preacher said, temptation is not so much the penalty of manhood, it is the glory of manhood. It is that by which a man is made an athlete for God, end quote. You know, you're, you're praying in your little small group, oh Lord, help me to be a man of God or help me to be a woman of God or you're having a quiet time, Lord, just help me to be godly, help me to be strong in the faith. And God says, okay, time for calisthenics. And now, remember this, okay? I'm throw. I'm letting you go into this now. This is coming your way, and now you have to say, okay, what does the Bible say? And you know what? What's weird is, is when we 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 go into it, and we're starting to hurt, and we're really getting weak, and we're almost at the point of despair. I was like, maybe this is God. It's like, of course it is. He's answering your prayer, man. He's trying to make you buff spiritually. You know, five sets of ten temptations. (laughs) Lift them, you know, with the power of Jesus. Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan, said, quote, God allows temptations to come upon us for a good to teach us to handle our sword. I mean, how are you going to learn how to handle your sword unless you get into some sword fights? Ease and pleasure never makes a fit soldier. It's just the way it is. It's like, man, I'm going to be an Olympic guy. What are you doing on the couch? Well, I'm trusting Jesus. He's going to send a lion after you and make you run, run, run. Now, you might be at this point asking yourself, well, but isn't it kind of dangerous? I mean, I can see from these examples you've given that God does allow us to be tested. And he not only allows us to be tested, but he actually in the course of allowing us to be tested, brings us very close to where we, we, we're going to be tempted to sin. Uh, why would God do that? Why would he don't bring us to the edge of the cliff like that? It just doesn't seem good. It just doesn't seem right. Well, that's not all the scriptures say. The scriptures also say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and that God is faithful and that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but God will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to bear up or endure it so know this if God ever lets you wander into the valley of death he's going to bring you out If he ever allows you to be tempted and even tempted greatly, he's going to provide a way of escape every single time, which means whatever temptation, whatever trial, whatever testing God brings your way, you know, his grace is going to be sufficient for you so you can endure it. I mean, there's times when things come upon people in our church that I just marvel at how well they're doing. I mean, you ever wonder that when you, when somebody's going through some sickness or some family trial, and you learn about it, and you think, "Well, how are you even standing? Why are you in the, the fetal position in the corner?" It's like I don't know. It's God's grace, and you know, just the thought of them going through it is enough to almost overwhelm me. But to see them clothed in their right mind and kind of relaxed and functioning, thinking, "Man, that is incredible." And that's because I'm not in that trial. So God's grace isn't sufficient for me for their trial. But if I was in that trial, his grace would be sufficient. Now, it might not be easy, but it would be sufficient. It might make me weak and cling to Christ, but then I would be strong. And so whatever God brings our way, whatever testing, whatever trial, we need to realize that God may use hard testing tempting things to make us spiritual athletes for himself Four, finally, God is one that we need to come to asking that he not lead us into temptation, which is what the whole request is. Now I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, well, Jack, I just thought you said he doesn't. Well, sometimes he doesn't. You can still ask for one thing, even though God might allow another. The problem, though, if we fall into sin is never with God. And so knowing our own weakness, we need to say, God, listen, don't get me into Please don't let me get into any situation where I'm going to sin against you. I mean, you know, my weakness and I know it's always my fault. But you also know that I don't always use your grace like I should. You know, I don't trust you like I should. You know, my weakness. And so while your grace is sufficient, I'm not sufficient. And so please lead me not into temptation. Don't, don't let me go there. I mean, I pray this way all the time. Every time I go to the mall, I was just emailing Brad Kelly of Japan and we just kind of, you know, commiserated about the mall. A mall. It's like Vanity Fair. Every time I go in there, it's like a... teeth gritting place. God has promised to not allow us to be tempted beyond what you're able. I know what you're thinking. Okay, now God doesn't tempt us beyond what we're able. God is guiding us through his providence. God knows all things before they happen. But God allows things to happen. Why? Why does he do that? And, And if he does, if he's a good God... And he knows everything, and he not only knows what's going to happen, but has the power to remove us from the temptation, and that he's not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, then why would we ever pray, lead us not into temptation, when he has already said his grace is sufficient? Say, hey, we can get to that place. And, and this is, though a logical sequence of thoughts, we need to remember this. That God in his sovereignty not only decrees the end, but the means to the end. He not only says, I am going to save so-and-so, but he also decrees how so-and-so will be saved. I mean, if God already knows who he's going to save, then why pray for the lost? If God already knows who he's going to save, then why witness to the lost? Listen, if your days are already numbered, then why eat well? Amen? I mean, why have vitamins and exercise? I mean, you God, your days are already numbered anyways. That's because not only has God decreed who will be saved, not only does he not number your days, but he also decrees the means to which he achieves those ends. And one of the ways that God brings himself glory is by giving you an eye. The great blessing of participating in what he's doing here on earth. That is the cool thing about being a Christian. You get to be part of God's eternal plan. God says, I'm going to save this person, and He sends you there to witness to them. Now, sure, God could have just zapped them saved, but He used you. He used your prayers. Hey, here's your words out of your mouth. You shared the gospel with them. And though you didn't save them, God did. God used you. God wants to use you. And so God says, this is what I want you to do. Though I'm good and my grace is sufficient and I know what's going to be too much for you. And I know I'm going to give you enough to endure under any temptation. I want you to pray to me. That I not lead you into those situations. Because that way, you'll be reminded that you need me to escape from sin. That you need my grace. And then you'll trust in me. And then I'll do my part. You do your part. So that you can participate in what I'm doing in your life. That's what God wants. It's not just God's sovereign. But God's sovereign by doing things through you it's amazing that he just doesn't throw us away in the trash can say listen i can do a lot better without you now you are sitting out there and you say well yeah but how does that work i mean how how does um how does god answer the prayer lead us not into temptation you know if you're going to praise god for answering that prayer what does that look like well that's a good question and first of all you need to know where sin comes from we're usually sin from two different places inside and outside you know if god just transported you to some tropical island and cast satan and demons into the abyss and you're there all by yourself in this perfect little paradise it wouldn't take 10 minutes before you started complained by how far up the coconuts were in the tree you know, and how you're getting sunburned. And Lord, how come you had to bring me here with no suntan lotion? And I wish I could have some friends. And where's my cot to lie on the beach? And you know, I mean, we would, we would have plenty of sins and complaints and problems all by ourselves. Even if there was no evil influence, we can sin plenty on our own. So sometimes temptation comes from within. The other time it comes from without. So first you need to understand that. Then we need to also realize that God leads us in two primary ways. So we have two primary ways where we're going to expect sin, temptation to come from. And we have two primaries God leads us. One is through his providence. We've already talked about it. God is leading all things by his providence. Golden Heist says this, that The Christian longs to be able to sin no more, so he prays conscious of his own weakness that God may guide his life away from circumstances in which he is exposed to evil temptations, end quote. That's exactly right. You you pray that God will just guide you. You know what's interesting? We never know when we don't go into sin, right? Because you weren't there. It never happened. I, you know, I don't know if, if this is gonna be this way in heaven, but it's gonna be interesting if, you know, we could sit down with Jesus or something and say, could you show me what would have happened if this didn't happen? You know, if this didn't happen, what would have happened? And what about this? You know, God not only knows everything, He knows everything that could have been. The fact is, is there are a lot of times in our life, I'm sure you've experienced where all of a sudden you just realize, man, I could have been there when this happened you ever had that happen you know people say like yeah i was just in the you know the world trade centers the day before the and i was gonna be there that way but you know some things happen and i just wasn't able to get there or you know you're driving down the freeway and there's an earthquake and the bridge falls down behind you yay thank you for speeding me up You know, for some reason, your wife and kids were on time that morning. It's like, well, well, we're early. Well, it's good. Well, you would have a leisurely drive, you know, and off you go. An earthquake falls down the bridge. And, you know, you look in your rearview mirror. Oh, thank you, Lord. When every other morning would have went off the end. And see, we don't know those things, but we know that God is doing that. God is delivering us from temptation through providence, through his workings. And we, we we don't ever know what those are. Just but be thankful that you weren't in that place, that you would have been severely tempted and caved in. The second primary way God will answer prayer to lead us from temptation is just by wisdom gained from his word. And there are so many things. You know, I just thought, you know, I could just, we could preach for the end of the year on this one. I'm just going to give you four examples Four examples, God might lead you through wisdom gained from his word. First, God's word tells us in Proverbs 27, 12, a prudent man sees evil and hides himself. Thy naive proceed and pay the penalty. Now, you meditate on that a little bit and you think, you know, I think what that's saying is, is I need to look ahead, see where evil's gonna be encountering me, and take a detour. That's pretty simple, isn't it? When they were working on the roads, uh, there was this place where they had put this new asphalt down, there was like a, like a three inch manhole dip. Yeah, you're all laughing because you hit it too. <laughs> and then what happens is the next day you're driving down and you're thinking to yourself, you aren't thinking about it. And i of a wham! You think, I did it again. Finally, after four or five times, you're thinking to yourself, okay. When well, I turned on that straight up the road, that manhole's there. And I'm not gonna drive at it today. And you detour. And it's smooth and wonderful. That's what he's saying. You know you're gonna get on the internet. You know it's there. You know the dangers. So you put up little guards and little filters and make certain settings and get certain accountabilities. Why? So you don't fall into the pothole. You know, you know that when you're going to get around aunt so-and-so, that she just has a way of just driving you. (laughs) And so what you're going to do is you're going to pray up and you're going to get you know, some scriptures memorized and, and you're going to do your best and get somebody to hold you accountable. Your wife, to, you know, get a needle and stick it in your hand. If you start getting a little wound up and whatever it takes, because you know, it's going to come, you know, this is a tempting situation. You hide yourself from it. So sometimes that's just an example. You study God's word. It tells you See evil. Hide yourself from it. Don't be naive and proceed and pay the penalty. Terry Johnson, in his book, When Grace Comes Alive, says temptations comes from, and these are the three P's, his three P's of temptation, people, places, and products. Isn't that good? People, places, and products. Or if you want to be more biblical, you can do what Thomas Watson calls the godless man's trinity, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I mean, that's where it's coming. So if you keep finding things that happen in your life and you keep falling into sin, then make plans to avoid the pothole instead of just proceeding and paying the penalty. Bingo. Here's another one. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 Says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, that is a good question, especially today. By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And you just think about that. And you meditate on that. And finally, you just kind of get this revelation. From that little verse. I should probably... Stick more of God's word in my heart. And if I do that, it will help me not sin against God. That is not a hard concept. So you say, okay, I don't think Sunday morning, Pastor Jack is going to be able to fill up my walnut to last me the rest of the week. So I've got to do more addition. So I'm going to listen to more sermons on CD. I'm going to, get to load up my MP3 player instead of listening to music. I'm going to listen to God-honoring music and music with scriptures in it. I'm going to read less fiction, more books that put into my heart biblical truth. I'm going to watch things that don't undermine the word of God. You basically look at your life, you know, like a tub. And every time you sin or... Go into something that's just worthless and dissipation, like somebody poking a hole in your bucket. Say, I'm gonna stop those up. Not only that, you're trying to keep the water inside pure. And if you don't guard what's coming into your life and plug those holes and the sewage comes in. So you say, okay, in order to not sin against God, I gotta get God's word of my heart and I gotta keep it pure. So what am I gonna do? Stop the leaks. Stop the sewage from coming in. I mean, that's not all that complex. That's how God leads you not into temptation. He gives you the wisdom to not go there. Here's another one. Let's say you're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee immorality. And you think, "Oh, that is interesting. you're reading along. you get down to you know first Corinthians ten fourteen and he says, "Flee, idolatry, and you think, you know that's the second time he said that." I'm going to look up some cross references and then you look at 1 Timothy 6:11 flee from these things you man of God and pursue righteousness godliness faith love perseverance and gentleness and then you look at 2 Timothy 2:22 2, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness faith love peace with those who call upon the Lord from a clean heart and you're thinking I think there's a there's a theme here I should probably be fleeing And then you make plans to flee from whatever it is that's chasing you down. Now, that's not difficult. Another way God might answer your prayer is by bringing other believers into your life. You get involved in a little small group. You get involved in a discipleship group. You just say, hey, will you meet with me? Will you help hold me accountable? You know, I just recently heard a good story. You know, there was a guy who was going to meet with a small group at seven o'clock. He had to work late, so he called up and said, sorry, I can't come. They said, we'll postpone it to eight. Good friends. He called up at eight and said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to work it later. Okay, we're going to postpone it to nine. Nine o'clock, I said, listen, guys, I am so burned out. You're coming. Oh, man, you know, I just can't. I'm just way too tired. You're coming, and if you don't come, we're showing up to your house. <laughs> See, those are friends. Listen, you get into our small group, man, you're dying here. (laughs) We're after you, pal. See, that's it. That's it. You know, you have your little Bible study and somebody shows up and says, oh, you know, I didn't get my study done. Oh, okay. we're just going to spend all about 15 minutes and we're all going to take turns praying for you and your problem. And then we're all going to text you 10 times a day for the next week to remind you. Because we love you. You go after each other so God may lead you not into temptation by giving you people in your life who are going to encourage you to do what's right. And these are just four examples of all sorts of ways God's word gives us ways where God will lead us not in temptation. You know, God, when you say, Lord, lead me not in temptation, it's not like God's just going to providentially prevent it from happening all the time. Sometimes he says, okay, here's wisdom. You apply it by my grace and you escape. That's how most of it happens. Well, we got to close shop here. I, I came across this uh, this prayer by a man. It was a poem or whatever by a man named Augustus Topley. Most of us um, know him for his hymn, Rock of Ages. And he wrote a lot of other poems. And he lived from 1740 to 1778. I'm just going to finish with this little poem that he wrote and it's called the Lord's Prayer and as I read this I want this to be a review to you of everything we've learned so far in the Lord's Prayer because he covers everything not only what's in Luke but what's in Matthew but just listen to his words let these truths be just fixed in your mind to sink in your heart so that as you leave today you will be resolved to give God glory in your prayer life this is what Toplet wrote Our Holy Father, all thy will we fain would perfectly fulfill, but each has left thy law undone, unworthy to be called thy son. Who art in heaven, enthroned on high, diffusing glory through the sky, reigning above on earth, revered by saints beloved and by sinners feared. Forever hallowed be thy name, the true triune God, the bright I am, at which serific choirs and all the hosts of heaven adorning fall. Thy kingdom come, even now we wait. Thy glory to participate, rule in our hearts, unrivalled reign. Nor eer withdraw thyself again. Thy will, thy law, thy precept given, be done on earth as it is in heaven. Faithful as angels, fain would we, with covered faces, wait on thee, great God, on whom the ravens cry for sustenance our one supply. Give us this day, and ye evermore, our daily bread from hour to hour. Forgive whatever we do amiss, our willful sins and trespasses, as we forgive. Reward us thus, all them that trespass against us. And lead us not by bounties tied into temptation, lust, or pride, but what by mercy we obtain, let power omnipotent restrain. Uh, And, O, deliver us thine own from evil, and the evil one who... Fain his darts and us would sheath and bind us with the chains of death. Thou Lord canst vanquish his design, thine is the kingdom, only thine, the power, the eternal majesty and glory appertain to thee. Now that is a great poem. It just brings everything that we've learned all together. So let's now bow. I just pray that as we go through this and as we, this won't just be information about praying, but this will be information that will be turned into praying. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you that Jesus is the great example, that as disciples, we do desire to want to know how to pray. We pray that you would glorify your name. We pray, Father, that in us and in all things in this earth, you will glorify your name. Father, we also want to just ask you that you would just cause Jesus to return soon, that he would come for his church and set in motion those things that will bring about your kingdom here on earth. Father, may the thought of that purify us. And Father, may we acknowledge every day that we need you for our daily needs, not only for the little things, but also for the big things. And as we are trusting you, Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we fail to give you honor in our lives. And Father, may we only ask for forgiveness as we are actively forgiving others who sin against us. And Father, may we also Just come to you asking that you would lead us not in temptation for we are weak. And even though your grace is sufficient, we all like sheep go astray. Each of us turns to his own way. But father, we are thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Father, we are reminded that you are a great God, that you never allow us to be tempted beyond what you are, what we are able. But you always provide the way of escape. Help us to trust you. Help us to look for that way that we might escape, that we might give you glory and honor for helping us walk in holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.